Hello, and welcome to Disneyversity, the podcast crash course through the history of Disney's animated classics, where we talk about some of the most famous movies ever made that most of us probably don't know nearly as well as we think. Each episode, we'll be moving forward in time through the legendary Disney catalogue, watching every feature film in the Walt Disney Animation Studios vault, from Snow White to Wish, seeing how they stand up today, how they pushed the boundaries of animation, shaped the legacy of Walt Disney and the wider Disney brand, and how they influenced pop culture at large. Disclaimer, this is not an official Disney podcast, but all of these films are available to stream now on Disney Plus, so come on, watch along with us, and let's learn together. I'm film journalist Ben Travis, and while I've spent three Christmases in a row now discussing different Disney-affiliated versions of A Christmas Carol, I'm not your Disneyversity lecturer. No, this week I'm merely a computer-generated digital replica of myself with a giant chin and straggly grey hair, as we watch through 62 films and counting. Thankfully though, I'm joined by an animation academic who, at this time of year, simply manifests as a cheery candle boy with a head made of luminous flame, which I'm gonna say is a good thing. I am, of course, talking about the one and only Dr. Sam Summers, our guide through one of the most groundbreaking and beloved animated movie catalogues of all time. Sam, how are you doing? Ho ho ho, Merry Christmas, the festive season is upon us. Ho ho ho, yeah, I'm having a great time, I'm now officially off work, school's out for winter, university closed, it's just me and some movies... Lydia's in the house somewhere, but it's mainly me and movies these last couple of days. It's been fantastic. What's on your Christmas watch list? Oh, I don't. I mean, I'm not watching Christmas movies, Ben. It's <laughs> I'm not really. I watched the Batman thing. I watched the Merry Little Batman animation on Amazon, which was pretty good. But it's mainly like catching up on on animated stuff. Chicken Run has been a big one. I quite enjoyed that. Chicken Run to Dawn of the Nugget. I haven't seen it yet. I'm saving it up for properly over the Christmas period. I'm still working at the moment, so I haven't quite clocked off yet. It's pretty good. It's pretty much the same tone as the first one, but updated from like World War Two escape movies to like 1960s spy movies. And there's a bit of like Thunderbirds in there. And um, yeah, Mission Impossible, early James Bond. It's been getting some middling reviews, but I thought it was pretty good. Not as good as the first one. But in terms of actual Christmas material and Disney Christmas material, it's mainly been on Disney Plus they have collated together all of the Christmas episodes of, you know, like The Simpsons, Futurama and stuff like that, but also, crucially, all of the Christmas episodes of Home Improvement. So I've been kind of working <laughs> my way through those bit by bit, much to Lydia's upset as well. Like, I know you're not a fan of... And, and neither is she. <laughs> Why would I be? Who is a fan of that? <laughs> and when I'm watching the show, it's kind of like, because I'm not going to sit and watch every episode of Home Improvement. I'm not, I find it very funny, but not enough to like sit through and watch every one. But if it's like, what, 10 episodes, like the Christmas episode from each season, I can work my way through that and do a kind of call and response, like, like whenever he does it, like a grunt <laughs> along screening. And that immediately became extremely entertaining in the uh, first Christmas episode of Home Improvement, where Tim the Toolman Taylor, as portrayed by Tim Allen, is presenting his show Tool Time 
along with his sidekick Al, as portrayed by Richard Kahn. And for the Christmas episode of Tool Time, he gives us a little rendition of Jingle Bells. He gives us a... This is all happening in the first, like, two minutes of this episode. And then all of the audience, like the fake studio audience for Tool Time, join in with... Oh, God. <laughs> That's so much. Arr, arr. Uh, <laughs> how much would you give to be in that audience? Arring back at Tim Allen. Oh man! If I could go back in time, if I had a time machine, I'd love to be in in the studio audience. Not the real studio audience, but the fake studio audience for any episode of Home Improvement, but especially the Christmas one. You are the only person going on Disney Plus to find Tim Allen Christmas content <laughs> watching. <laughs> Home Improvement rather than the Santa Claus. Or the Santa Clauses, which is something to do with the Santa Claus. I guess it's a sequel. It's the sequel reboot, the requel series, where there's all sorts of reports about how horrible it is shooting with Tim Allen. Maybe because he goes ar 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 all the time, or for worse things than that. Who knows with him these days? Anyway, you were really keen for us to do this freaky Robert Zemeckis A Christmas Carol. We've done Mickey's Christmas Carol. You can find that further back in the pod feed. Last year, we did The Muppet Christmas Carol with special guest Brian Herring. Now we are on to the Zemeckis. What has brought us here? What is your history with this film? Oh, I have no history with this film whatsoever. <laughs> but I was very keen to get us to do it. I mean, I have, as everybody does, a morbid fascination with the last couple of decades of, of Robert Zemeckis's career, and in particular his obsession with motion capture technology, of which this is but one example. But I have not seen the movie before. I think I've caught on TV a few years ago like a couple of the most disturbing minutes of this film. (laughs) And that kind of has stuck in my head, but I've been waiting for a good opportunity to watch it and ideally to force you to watch it as well. But it, it just made sense to me that we'd finished the trilogy of Christmas carols. We did Mickey's Christmas Carol, The Muppet's Christmas Carol... And it feels like, you know, the ghost of Christmas past, the ghost of Disney Christmas past is Mickey's Christmas Carol. It's all of, it's a throwback to those old school Mickey Mouse cartoons. Muppet Christmas Carol, it's the ghost of Christmas present because it's a present to us all. And we all still watch it every year. And then Robert Zemeckis's Jim Carrey's Disney's A Christmas Carol is the Christmas Carol of Christmas future because... It's a terrifying vision of a future where this is what movies look like that we have thankfully averted by changing our ways. Yeah, so we keep throwing this name around. Robert Zemeckis, if that name means nothing to you, this is the legendary director behind the Back to the Future trilogy, behind Who Framed Roger Rabbit. He made Forrest Gump back in the day. He is a classic filmmaker, but he's gone off the boil in recent years. He's making some mad decisions. He really went through a decade of making these freaky motion capture all cg films and his a christmas carol is very much in that vein so that is enough from us we're all sat down the register's complete and it's time for class to begin this time we're returning to scrooge's gravestone one last time in 2009's robert zemeckis's disney's a christmas carol Right then, Sam, do we need to do this one more time? Are we really going to sum up the plot of A Christmas Carol once again? God, um, old man, nasty dude, doesn't like Christmas, sees some ghosts, he likes Christmas again. But this time with horror, basically. This is the horror version. 
and not just the default horror of like ghosts and maybe the third ghost is like a bit scary and he wears a cloak this is just nightmare from from start to finish much of it intentional yeah there is real actual horror mixed in this as well as the horror of everything you're seeing on the screen at any one time so before we get into discussing the film Let's have a little chat about the the history of Robert Zemeckis and his love affair with motion capture, because even when we did our Who Framed Roger Rabbit episode, it was really clear that he, as a filmmaker, was really interested in, you know, pushing cinematic techniques of trying to come up with ways to make this live-action and cartoon world hybrid and the techniques that you could use to make that happen. And it feels like that sows a bit of a seed to where you get to films like this, where it is using actors basically as digital puppets to create these entirely CG movies. How does he begin to get into this stuff? Well, he first got his hands on this technology in the Polar Express in 2004, which is another Christmas classic. Like, I feel like people still watch that movie. Like, whenever I bring that up... Actually, we're kind of over the hump of this, because for a while... Polar Express was an easy punching bag in my lectures. Like, whenever I'm trying to get across the idea of the Uncanny Valley, Polar Express is is one that I go back to and show clips of. And then there was a couple of years where the students would, like, push back a little bit because they were of the age to watch Polar Express when they were kids. Right. And they're like, no, 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 hang on, that's a good movie. Like, yeah, it looks a little <laughs> bit dated, but, it, like, we love it. And now... This year, I feel like everyone's back on side. <laughs> and we've gone back to, yeah, Polar Express. That's a bit of a, a tragedy, isn't it? I've never seen the Polar Express. I've somehow managed to avoid it this whole time. I feel like friend of the pod, Jake Cunningham from Ghibliotech, went to see the Polar Express in IMAX at the weekend at like 10 o'clock in the morning. I need to send him a message and be like, dude, are you okay? Is everything all right? <laughs> it's, it's a really harsh like switch around in Zemeckis' career because the movie that he made before this was Castaway, which feels very much like, you know, it's, it's normal live action Tom Hanks. It's a classic. It's got like moments that everyone remembers. It's got that classic Zemeckis, you know, vaguely schmaltzy, but like inspirational tone to it. And then it's a hard pivot four years later to Polar Express. We'll get Castaway, then nothing for four years, and then Polar Express, a movie in which Tom Hanks provides the motion capture performance for every character, including the little boy. (laughs) (laughs) That's such a terrifying idea. It's such a wild idea to have Tom Hanks playing a little 10-year-old. Crazy. And then we get Beowulf. No, uh, sorry. Then we get Monster House in 2006, which he produced but didn't direct. That's almost a good movie because it's supposed to be scary. So that's in a similar territory to this one. I did see the 2007, was it Beowulf? Again, it was this motion capture technology version of Beowulf with Ray Winston, but they made him look like Sean Bean. (laughs) And it was the big 3D boom of that time. It was one of the big, like, come and see this in 3D. So I think that's the thing that got me into the cinema. I remember as a teenager with questionable taste enjoying that film i don't know if i'd have the same reaction these days it's just like it's a pretty gnarly badass swords and sorcery story right like it's beowulf it's a classic tale which i don't know if there's been that many other really successful adaptations of that story on screen so it's worth watching but again it's not 
great. But I, the CGI in that is pretty impressive. When I saw the trailers for that when I was a kid, I thought it was a live-action movie, partly because a lot of it is so dark. It's, it's very dimly lit. But yeah, that's another Robert Zemeckis motion capture film. And you know, they weren't disasters, Polar Express and Beowulf. They weren't huge, but they weren't like career-ending failures. Not quite. would get there eventually. But this run was apparently good enough for Zemeckis to get into bed with Disney for the next stretch of this obsession, this, this addiction. Uh, Disney were going to enable him to continue to make these things. So he somehow managed to convince the Disney company to get involved in a joint venture, a new studio called Image Movers Digital, which would be dedicated solely to producing fully motion-captured films, and this was the first of them in 2009. So who comes up with the idea to do A Christmas Carol first? Is that Disney wants to do A Christmas Carol and Robert Zemeckis comes over like, hey, I've got the perfect technology for this? Or does Robert Zemeckis go, I have seen the future, and the future is a version of A Christmas Carol with Jim Carrey playing half the roles, and I know the perfect studio to make this with me is none other than Disney. What what way round does that go? It's Zemeckis' baby, and I think he'd wanted to do A Christmas Carol for a while. Like He's a huge fan of the story. He's described it as like the best time travel story ever made. He should know what he's talking about, because he's the guy behind Bat of the Future. And you can see like elements of those Bat of the Future movies he's drawn on. Like, I think especially Bat of the Future 2, with the kind of weird Biff universe. He's drawn on some of the ideas from A Christmas Carol. But he thought that this was the only way to really do justice to the actual Dickens. (laughs) What the actual Dickens Uh, (laughs) is something you might exclaim while watching this movie. But you know that the Dickens story, I mean Zemeckis has described the way Dickens writes as very cinematic. And it is very strange and surreal and describes a lot of bizarre and impossible imagery that would be difficult to capture in live action. And obviously there have been a few noteworthy animated adaptations of A Christmas Carol by this point. The live action versions, including The Muppets with all of its puppetry, hadn't quite been able to capture some of the stranger ghostly goings-on of the original story. And I think Zemeckis thought that we can find a middle ground here. We can find something that looks realistic, looks like it's set in the real world, has the kind of footprint of human performances and emotions in it, but also lets us go off into some strange CGI augmented places. Yeah, so last thing before we get into the film itself, because as we watch this now, this film is, what, 14 years old? It looks 14 years old. The technology has moved on considerably, and this no longer looks realistic. This does not look like a realistic world. I was there at the time. I didn't see this in the cinema. I hadn't seen this until we decided to do it for the podcast. But did this look realer at the time? Was it more impressive the way this looked? Were people, you know, going into this because it was going to be quote-unquote photorealistic? Or do you think people approached it at the time knowing that it was going to look a bit strange. I think, so if I, if I look back to the marketing campaign for this movie, it was very Scrooge heavy. And one thing that I do want to touch on is the design of Scrooge as a character and how that contrasts with the rest of the characters in this film, because Scrooge looks more like an animated character than anybody else. Scrooge has this like very caricatured face, which is partly indebted to the, the illustrations that went along with Dickens's publications, but I just think we have this idea in our mind of what Scrooge looks like, and it is this hook-nosed, long-chin, moon-shaped face, and a, a scraggly, old, wizened visage. And Scrooge, in incorporating 
those ideas that we have about what he should look like looks more like an animated character. So you don't see a lot of like Fred or Bob Cratchit in the marketing for this movie. All those posters were like close-ups of Scrooge. And I think that enabled Disney to sell this as another Disney animated movie, like another Disney CGI movie. The name Disney was very prominent in the marketing for this as well. Like it was Disney's A Christmas Carol. So I think they were trying to circumvent a lot of the truly terrible looking CGI creepiness by kind of defaulting to this animated style of of typical acceptable Christmas Carol creepiness. The marketing campaign is, no, no, it's supposed to look like that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. This character, this freaky looking guy, that's Scrooge. He's nasty. He's meant to look like that. But uh, (laughs) everybody else, you don't need to look at them just yet. You can see them once you've paid for your ticket. Okay, then. Shall we, theoretically, for the last time in this podcast, discuss another version of A Christmas Carol? Shall we get into the film itself? Yes, please. As you pointed out, the official name of this, and as it comes up on the screen, is Disney's A Christmas Carol. And it begins in a Disney-ish way, because we have this storybook opening. We have a CG version of the Dickens storybook, A Christmas Carol, opening up. It places you in a sort of Disney milieu right from the beginning. But let's talk about just the general look of this film before we get into everything else, because... It is inescapable. It's there from the very first frame. The way that the characters look, the way that the world looks, this, as you say, uncanny valley of the fact that these are real performances. These are actors playing these roles in suits with all these little dots on to give some level of fidelity to those performances in a world that is presenting as reality but that is all computer generated at a time where you can't make that stuff really look actually real it's so much the texture of this film it's there right from the beginning how are you feeling as you watch the first couple of minutes of this film well that storybook opening is really interesting and the way that it kind of eases you into this world this space this aesthetic because you get that like oldie timey illustration of marley being dead to begin with in the book itself and this is when you remember that this isn't just a a 3d film this is a 3d film yeah this was stuff poking out of the screen this is stuff chucking its way towards you yeah so it starts with this picture of marley like unfolding almost the different layers of his 3d face slowly popping out of this 2d illustration so i imagine that looked quite good or at least quite different in a cinema with the 3D gigs on, but it also, when you're just watching this on a TV, transitions you from like a typical 2D Disney space into this three-dimensional space. But when it comes to the characters, like Marley, again, is quite caricatured, but it's the freakiness of that Scrooge model. Because Jim Carrey, as an actor, has a very distinctive face and has a very distinctive way of acting with his face. And I think that especially is like mouth movements, are incorporated into this visual, like, composite performance of Scrooge. But the rest of Scrooge's face looks like almost a mask that he's wearing, with just, like, a space for the lower half of Jim Carrey's face to poke through. And then as soon as you start seeing other characters, it's like, oh, man, this is this is strange, this doesn't quite go, this doesn't quite fit. Now, I think the environments 
are convincing enough, as convincing as they need to be. Like, if this was an animated movie, if this was a, a Pixar movie, if, I don't know, Sully and Mike were walking through this world or something. <laughs> They'd stepped out of a door in the Monsters, Inc. factory and stepped out in this world, and they're the ones screaming, not the kids. <laughs> <laughs> so I think in that case, it would feel more convincing. But it's this strange, like, collage of different approaches to visualizing the world in three dimensions like scrooge and then the other characters faces and then the more realistic environments and none of them quite feel believable putting them all on screen together is augmenting the uncanny valley effect that any of them individually would have i would say and it's interesting you're talking about jim carrey because that's a huge part of this that we're going to get into it but jim carrey plays scrooge but he also plays multiple other characters in this film And as a performer to pick for this kind of medium, as you say, the thing about Jim Carrey is that his face moves in a way that a human face shouldn't move. He is like a walking cartoon character. That was his whole shtick from the 90s of Ace Ventura and The Mask. Obviously, there are CGI enhancements in The Mask as well. (laughs) Just barely. But his mouth, his face moves in a way that most people's don't. And so to then attach that to this technology that allows them to morph his face more I don't know if that's a great idea or a terrible idea if you lose the Jim Carreyness because it's like we expect CGI to be able to do things that actual faces can't or if he's the perfect person for that because they don't need to use CGI because it's all in the facial capture that they got from Jim Carrey who knows we go in as you say with Marley being dead to begin with that's a whole thing Jim Carrey as Scrooge being greedy, taking the coins from Marley's eyes. Then the thing that I've never encountered before, maybe this is from the Dickens and I've just forgotten it. There's like a seven year time jump. There's suddenly like seven years later, seven Christmases later. Is that that a part of the story? I mean, I guess it's suggested that there's been some time passing. I don't know the exact words that Dickens uses in those opening chapters, but I don't think it's meant to be Marley dies and then immediately Scrooge has this crazy christmas adventure but it is quite a good way to establish i mean what they want to do is establish scrooge as a very very naughty boy and then give us a bit of like believable distance between this and the eventual events that that turn him round. and the idea that since marley's died he's only kind of gotten colder and meaner so we're finding him at his absolute nadir here well like every day in every way scrooge is getting worse that feels like a song that feels like something we should turn into a a, maybe an entire muppet musical at some point i think we need to just avoid any evocation of the muppet movie (laughs) (laughs) oh actually i don't think we should actually because i've got some particular comparisons to make but this this does not come off well in comparison does it? it when it comes to like efficient ways of establishing who scrooge is i think muppet's christmas carol has this one beat but the thing that this does that the muppet christmas carol can't as perfect as the muppet christmas carol is i actually really like that beginning where after the marley sequence the camera rises up and it zooms across the rooftops of london and trying to get a sense of like victorian london in its hugeness in a way i kind of enjoy the traditional tellings of a christmas carol London feels like a village almost, it feels like a tiny neighbourhood, and you think of the Muppet Christmas Carol and those lovely little sets that are so beautifully made, but there's something about this getting across the sense of the city, and Zemeckis being able to use that technology to create a sense of scope and scale, and this is the thing, as much as I think that this whole era of what Robert Zemeckis is doing with motion capture technology 
is fundamentally misguided and creates some moderate levels of abominations on the screen he's also an incredible director he can pull off shots he can come up with sequences that are incredibly cinematic that are really effective so even studded through this film there are moments where you go oh yeah i'm watching a robert zemeckis movie whilst the rest of the time you're going oh no i'm watching a 2000s robert zemeckis movie help have you seen the tintin film the spielberg tintin i have and i know people love that movie I've got to be honest, I struggle with it. I tried to rewatch it a couple of years ago because people love it. I remember seeing it in the cinema and having a great time with it, but people online go nuts for that Tintin movie, and they're like, I've seen a great fourth Indiana Jones film, and it's called (laughs) Tintin. And so I tried to rewatch it the other year, and I got about 15, 20 minutes in, and I was like, I... I'm not enjoying this. I can't do it. Uh, yeah, I struggle with the look of that. It's still the freakiness. Yeah, I don't know if it's... Yeah, I think it, it must be the freakiness because there are very few Spielberg films that you put on and, and turn off 20 minutes later, so... See, I do really like the Tintin movie, unfortunately, and I think part of it is that it... The reason why it works better than this is because it commits very fully to caricature in the same way that Scrooge is trying to evoke old illustrations of that character, the Tintin movie is obviously trying to evoke the original Tintin comics, so it means that they have to commit to a stylized appearance which creates a buffer between us and the freaky... It's like a bridge across the Uncanny Valley, is those stylized images. But, I mean, the only reason I bring it up being that the action sequences in that movie, like some of the tracking shots in that movie, are spectacular. I can see why you might not like the movie as a whole, but if you take in isolation some of the chase sequences in that film, it's like, God damn, it's Steven Spielberg. If nothing else, it can create this kind of action. And that is kind of what we'll get with Zemeckis here, although some of the moments in which you would attempt that feel a little bit forced into the context of A Christmas Carol, which I'm sure we'll get to. The last thing while we're on this part of the film, I want to shout out the production designer of this, I was delighted to see a name pop up, Doug Chang, who these days is one of the head honchos on production design at Lucasfilm. He does loads of the recent Star Wars stuff. He was on a couple of prequels back in the day, did the first two prequels with George Lucas. Then he goes off to Zemeckis land, doesn't do Revenge of the Sith, comes back for The Force Awakens. But I I think Doug Chang's a bit of a legend. I love his art. He's very much in that Ralph McQuarrie style when he's doing his Star Wars bits. But I had no idea he was involved with this. So when his name popped up, I was like, that Doug Chang? Surely it's got to be that Doug Chang. And it was. I'm glad for him that he found his way back to Star Wars after this film. But yeah, lovely to see his name pop up. So after the opening, we settle into the rhythms of the story that we know and love. We are with Scrooge on Christmas Eve, seeing him be generally a terrible person to everybody, whether that's people collecting charity on the streets or Bob Cratchit asking for a little bit of time off around Christmas. Scrooge is a bad un. What do you make of Jim Carrey's Scrooge? Do you think he works with this role is it a good idea to cast him with this technology or do you think something is lost it's a funny one isn't it because in addition to that thing that you were talking about before of how much of his plastic malleable face and 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 physical performance do you lose through the motion capture process there's also the fact that he's playing a character who for the most part is a lot stiffer and more reserved and obviously as crazy things start to happen to him he starts to behave in a more crazy way and we'll get these like wild takes and things but for the first act of this movie because it does go on it is like half an hour before we get to any ghosts pretty much Scrooge is like this little stiff character moving in this like Mr. Burns style fashion uh, that doesn't allow for him to really indulge in any of the the maniacal 
excesses that we expect from him as a performer. And he speaks in a very strange voice, which I'm not quite sure what he's trying to do or where in the world he's supposed to be from. He's just, I, I guess if I'm Scrooge, I talk like sure, this, yes, and I have sir. to be a bit British, but I have to sound grumpy. And even though I'm Jim Carrey, I'm talking like this. So basically, Jim Carrey plays Scrooge and the ghosts, which in terms of a vocal performance, basically amounts to the Ghost of Christmas present and the Ghost of Christmas past. And with each of them, he's making very bold choices in terms of his accent and his tone of voice. And I think each of them are quite restrictive. I think Jim Carrey is more known as a physical performer than a vocal performer. But there are, like, vocalisations that you can immediately bring to mind from all of his movies. And I think making these vocal choices is quite restrictive and it doesn't allow him to indulge that side of his talents either not that the voices are all terrible but he's kind of stuck in these little vocal boxes that he's constructed for himself yeah while i was watching this i think i kept forgetting it was jim carrey and you could imagine robert zemeckis going well it's great that you forget that you're watching jim carrey and you just think you're watching scrooge but then the whole point of this is like you're watching jim carrey's scrooge and it doesn't feel like a Jim Carrey performance to me. It's, it is an odd one. I think it's really interesting, as you say, that he is a physical performer maybe more than he is a vocal performer. And when you stick him in something as strictly characterised as this, you just don't get that Careyness. And I like the idea of Jim Carrey plays all the ghosts because I like the idea that they are kind of parts of Scrooge's psyche, right? They're like parts of his ego that, that he has to contend with. They are like the, the people he's left behind or the people that he could be. Uh, shadows of himself and the ghost of Christmas future literally is formed from his shadow. So I like that element of it. And I would say in, in particular, the ghost of Christmas present and the ghost of Christmas past, you get more of that, for better or for worse, Jim Carrey facial performance as well but um yeah it does if you bring in jim carrey you contract him for a particular reason and i don't think playing these very well established characters is fitted to his talents like he's great at taking lesser known characters or original characters and bringing everything that he is to it this would be a bit like casting jim carrey to play Batman. I say that saying that the costume character play the Riddler, but you know, the Riddler feels like a character where you can bring your own thing to it, like Jim Carrey's Riddler is very different from Paul Dano's Riddler, but you wouldn't cast Jim Carrey to play Batman, who feels more strictly defined, right? It's the same as casting him to play Scrooge. I want him to have more space to work. I think that's fair. Well, at least this does lean into the Jim Carreyness because we have to talk about some of the other casting here before we get into the ghostly visitations, because Oh my goodness. Gary Oldman's Bob Cratchit is the most terrifying thing in this movie. Can we agree? (laughs) No, it is nowhere close, but I agree that it is extremely terrifying. Why does he look like that? Why does he sound like that? What did they do to his face? You look at the Jim Carrey Scrooge and you're like, oh, he looks like Jim Carrey, but they've, you know, pulled some features around a bit. The Gary Oldman Bob Cratchit, why have they made him look like that? That was on purpose? What have they done? (laughs) It's interesting because, sort of jump ahead very slightly, but also this is creepy, right? But in a different way. When Colin Firth comes on playing Fred, he looks like Colin Firth. (laughs) It is like Colin Firth has walked into this movie and he's only playing Fred. So I think they've just thought, okay, let's just Colin Firth it up. Colin Firth, he's cool, he's handsome. Let's bring all of that to this movie and just basically give him a little bit of CGI makeup on top of his face. 
Gary Oldman is not doing what Colin Firth's doing, and he's not doing what Jim Carrey's doing. He is playing kind of technically three characters, but he's, he's playing at least two characters in this who are meant to be completely separate, unlike Scrooge and the Ghost, don't have any relationship with one another whatsoever. He's playing Bob Cratchit, and he's playing Jacob Marley. So neither of them ends up looking much like Gary Oldman, but they also have to look completely distinct from each other, which means they've both been caricatured in quite odd and disturbing ways. And, and of course, he also plays, I don't even know if you would have noticed this unless you saw it in the credits, he does the motion capture performance for Tiny Tim. No, that's <laughs> yeah. a Gary Oldman child. Yeah. What? Obviously not the voice. And that makes sense though, right? So I want to have some facial similarities or like similarities in the mannerisms between father and son, maybe. Why? <laughs> this is the madness of this era. Why did they get Gary Oldman to act out the motions of a child? And then get another actual child to do the voice of the child. Just get the child to do the performance. The madness of this era. Because that's what motion capture allows you to do. Like, that is one of the things that, if you use it correctly, which no one has ever done in the history of the medium, but if you did use it in a way that wasn't weird or just redundant, then the ability to have an actor playing different roles, both physically and vocally, without it looking like the same person, like be able to create physical distinctions between actors playing multiple roles, that's something you can see being useful, and it kind of is with Scrooge and the Ghosts. But with Gary Oldman and Tiny Tim and Bob Cratchit and Jacob Marley, to avoid it being confusing, they had to go to such strange lengths when designing these characters. Yeah, so we have Scrooge established in his world, then he goes home, (laughs) and the ghostly visitations begin, including... Gary Oldman becoming the doorknob. <laughs> He's back! <laughs> He's back as the doorknob. <laughs> which is hilarious. And then, when he gets properly visited by Marley at the start of the evening, as you mentioned, this is leaning into the fact that it's a horror story. It's a ghost story. It's about Scrooge's redemption coming by him being scared absolutely shitless by a bunch of ghosts. So, it begins with Marley's jaw snapping off and he's like (laughs) flapping his own jaw while he's talking and i was like who is this film for that is so needlessly visceral it's such a bizarre tone this film you get a lot more build-up to marley than you have in other versions of christmas carol like that's where the horror starts to come through when you're waiting for it to happen and we know what's coming but scrooge is just kind of wandering his house being a little bit spooked out and that's when it starts to feel like a horror movie but yeah when marley comes in it almost does away with that because it is so ridiculous when his jaw hangs off that was the moment where it's like this is much like his jaw this is unhinged right <laughs> like, this is what is this movie like you say who is it for it's so disturbing but at the same time so impossible to take seriously it does not look good because i am just imagining here he's a very talented actor i don't think gary oldman dislocated his jaw and flapped it around with his hand to speak for this scene so the motion capture thing is just temporarily gone out the window for this thing that does not look convincing, isn't particularly funny, is kind of disturbing, but not in the way that we were hoping for it to be. The only other movie I've seen them do this in is, is uh, Takashi Miike's Itchy the Killer. <laughs> I don't know if you've seen that movie, but it's like an absolutely deranged kind of torture porn kung fu movie in which the bad guy, his like mouth has literally been sliced all the way down. And I think he's got like Oof. pins in it. And 
and when he takes it out, his jaw just like flaps down open like that. So this reminded me of Itchy the Killer, which again, for the wonderful guy keeping track of all the films that were mentioned <laughs> on Letterboxd on this podcast, Itchy the Killer is one that I didn't think was going to make the list until five seconds ago. And then once Marley's turned up, Scrooge freaks out. He goes and looks out the window and there's all these other ghosts just flying around London because this is a thing that happens in this film. It feels like a bit of an encapsulation of the film as a whole in that it is just chucking extra stuff into the mix that doesn't need to be there. Well, that is from the Dickens. All of the other ghosts outside. Because to me, that felt extremely Disney because it felt extremely Haunted Mansion. It's a midnight jamboree. It's like the, the, the ballroom scene in the Haunted Mansion. Uh, but that is from Dickens. I don't think the point of it quite comes across. Because in this movie, they do... Maybe I just missed the trick, but they just look like they're having a kind of drunken party. And in, in Dickens, I think the idea is that these are all people who, like Marley, have been chained to earth through their misdeeds and have to like go out of the way to help people. Like They are forced to walk old ladies across the street and stuff like that because of the, the sins they committed in life. But in this, it just feels like an excuse for some CGI pyrotechnics, doesn't it? It does. Uh, as you said, there's a good build-up here. I like that whole sequence where the bells are slowly ringing and the doorknobs are rattling. There's some good build-up, and then we're into the rhythm of the ghosts as we know it. So, I was texting you while I was watching this film, laughing at all the crazy stuff that pops up on the screen, and you were like, just you wait, my friend, just you wait. And I was like, what am I waiting for? And it turned <laughs> out I was waiting, like Scrooge, for the ghost of Christmas past, who, as I alluded to in the intro, is Jim Carrey as a little Irish boy who's made out of a candle. And his head is like a little floating flame. What in the world is this film? He's a little whisperer, isn't he? He's like, oh, oh Scrooge, you better watch out if you're not a good lad. And all of that. Oh, Scrooge, do you want to look at yourself breaking up with your old girlfriend? Like, Now it's hard not to say, oh, it's, he's doing Barry Keoghan. But obviously that <laughs> wouldn't have been the case at the time. But this was such a moment because, you know, I knew Jim Carrey was playing all the ghosts. But especially because of how his performance was incorporated into Scrooge with these, like, enormous CGI prosthetic nose and chin, I was expecting him to be playing, like, the Ghost of Christmas past in a sort of abstract way where you wouldn't even necessarily know that you were looking at Jim Carrey. So when the Ghost of Christmas past arrives really slowly rising up into the frame coming out from behind Scrooge's bed and it literally just has Jim Carrey's exact face on it I absolutely (laughs) howled it's like a waxy candle body with a flame and then in the flame badly (laughs) composited is Jim Carrey's goddamn exact face it's nuts I howled so loud and I had to rewind it I just kept like going back to watch that hilarious moment where it comes up for the first time because they know what they've got it's such a slow little reveal like oh hello it's me oh I've got Jim Carrey's face I do that went Scottish I feel Zemeckis has made some really funny movies. Jim Carrey is primarily known as a comedy performer. They knocked it out of the park with this comedy ghost of Christmas past. He's a freaky little creation. It's an incredible moment of cinema, this little (laughs) candle-shaped goblin in his little Irish voice. It's nasty. And this is great, though, because I might be wrong about this. 
this might not be the same for everybody. For me, Christmas past is usually a bit of an also ran because like everyone remembers the ghost of Christmas future. He is Mm -hmm. terrifying. You know, he's spooky, even in the Muppets version, even in the Mickey Mouse version. He's a really scary guy. That's like the kind of crux of the story. We all remember that. And the ghost of Christmas present... I love, like, okay, especially in the Muppets, where he's just an amazing, like, huggable big dude that you just want to meet. But I also like a lot of the Christmas present lore. I like a lot of the ideas of behind, like, so he, he lives for a day and then he dies, and, like, he's had 1,850 brothers because a different Ghost of Christmas present is born every year. I think that's really cool. Christmas past, for me, has always been a little bit functional. Like, we need mm. the Ghost of Christmas past here because... The point is we need to introduce you to Scrooge at different points of his life and give you that backstory. But the ghost itself has never really been the focal point in a lot of the adaptations and has never had like a really interesting design. Which I say because this almost single-handedly redeems the Ghost of Christmas Past as a character. And it does get weirder. Like, there are better slash worse things to come in the movie. But I'm immediately absolutely gripped. Like, I cannot take my face off the screen whenever Jim Carrey's candle face is on the screen. Just not in the way that the filmmakers intended, I imagine. Yeah. But there are some other fun parts in the Ghost of Christmas Past sequence because... There are just wild delights everywhere in this film. Not only does Bob Hoskins turn up as Fezziwig in a lovely little Who Framed Roger Rabbit reunion, now, because of the magic of performance capture, he does front flips. That's a thing that Bob Hoskins does in this movie. <laughs> well, he also does that in Who Framed Roger Rabbit when he's um, the cartoon at the end, right? Where he's doing like the, the clowny thing with right. to make the weasels laugh. I'm so beside myself, I can't explain the plot of Who Framed Roger Rabbit. (laughs) But Zemeckis clocked that and was like, I can make you a cartoon doing front flips once again later in my career. And then there's the big lady who's just like spinning around in the air because that's a thing that happens at Christmas. Even the flashbacks to Scrooge's childhood, his little sister clearly is performed by a grown woman. He has a little sister with the voice of a grown woman. I just... Again, not in the way the filmmakers intended. I was deeply entertained while I was watching this part of the film. So we'll get Bob Hoskins, and I think we've got to shout out the. Uh, there's only a couple other significant members of the cast. So this is where Carrie Elwes comes into his own, right? Wait, Ke- Carrie Elwes is in this film? Carrie the Princess Elwes. Bride? Yeah, right. Carrie Elwes is in this film, and he is credited as Portly Gentleman Number One. Dick Wilkins, Mad Fiddler, Guest Number Two, and Businessman Number One. And I'm not going to stop and dwell on any of those insane character names because the main job that Carrie Elwes did in this film was doubling for Jim Carrey. They hired Carrie Elwes, a reasonably well-known actor, and just had him play young Scrooge when Jim Carrey was playing regular Scrooge so that they could map in a Jim Carrey performance after the fact creating this kind of weird Jim Carrey Elwes composite. Jim Carrey Elwes, oh my god. (laughs) But we also have, playing Belle, another Princess Bride alumni, Robin Wright. What? 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 (laughs) So Robin Wright is Belle for like less than five minutes on screen. Yeah. 
and the main reason I bring this up is because a couple of years later, uh, Robin Wright made a movie called The Congress, which is a, a live-action animated hybrid film. So she plays herself, the actress Robin Wright, and it's a very prescient story where she sells her entire body in like an AI rendering of her mind to a movie company so that they can keep making Robin Wright movies in perpetuity into the future with a computer-generated Robin Wright. And that feels like, like I say, it's, it's, it seems to be where things are headed now, but also I can't help but think that someone asked her to do that and she was like, well, based on the experience I've just had on A Christmas Carol becoming monstrous CGI Robin Wright for this movie, I feel like this is a story that I need to be the person to tell. Wow. Well, she clearly had thoughts after making this film. And we blast out of Christmas past <laughs> and into Christmas present with one of the most egregious like we just need a set piece in here we need some crazy 3d because we need jim carrey flying at the screen but scrooge blasts off on a rocket because he tries to snuff out the ghost of christmas past right that is bonkers it gives you the image that is on the poster that is scrooge going while clinging onto like a big piece of metal it's so over the top, and it's just to get us into the Christmas present sequence. Yeah, so the snuffing out the candle thing, that is from Charles Dickens, but the explosion that sends him flying into the sky, that is a Zemeckis original. <laughs> and so, having seen how strange the Ghost of Christmas Past was, I couldn't wait to see what the hell are we going to do with the Ghost of Christmas Present, who is the big friendly guy who you can't wait to see in the middle of the film, Again, it's a bit of a monstrosity. He's doing a Yorkshire accent now, but that also sounds a bit Scottish at points. And weirdly, they have made him look basically exactly the same as the Muppet one. He looked like the Muppet Ghost of Christmas Present to me. I mean, that's what the Ghost of Christmas Present looks like. As an image, you know, every Ghost of Christmas Past is kind of different, but as an image, the Ghost of Christmas Present is is fixed on the page in our minds, and it's kind of inspired by, like, depictions of Santa Claus, I would imagine. It says on Wikipedia Yorkshire, but there is definitely Scottish in there. I got a lot of Scouse from it. I know you're married to a Scouser. You're recording this in Liverpool, so you might disagree. But I just heard it as Ringo. And especially because... <laughs> I mean, what well, it's not a real accent, is it? But it's got kind of like Ringo's like Tombra. And there's this bit where he goes early on, he goes, Peace on Earth. Which I... Peace on love. Peace on <laughs> yeah, earth. peace on Earth. Goodwill to all men. It just felt very Ringo to me. So that's where <laughs> I thought he was taking his inspiration from the scariest thing right he is supposed to be the big friendly jolly guy but i found his incessant cheeriness really creepy this dude is a jolly nightmare he is laughing all the time at absolutely nothing to the point that i just couldn't stand being with him i was like i need to get past this part of the story the whole time he's just in the background going ho 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 and nothing what is that well, i think he's meant to be disturbing i think this was the answer to the question how do we make christmas present as disturbing as, as past and future and it, it really you know because we know the muppets version because we know the jolly version it's even worse like in in the book it's a little bit ambiguous i would say and adaptations especially the muppets make him feel a lot more friendly like in the, in the muppets scrooge is like begging them to stay right because he loves spending time with them he's seen so much happiness out there in the world and that's part of what starts to turn him around even before christmas future gets there but here christmas present is such a malevolent force like these horrible maniacal laughs the way that he basically 
send Scrooge through a version of Disneyland's Tower of Terror ride, ripping his house apart and sending it flying up into the air and then crashing down and up and down and the flying over London, looking at all of these events through Scrooge's floor that's kind of like faded out and... I don't really know what that was supposed to be as a visual device. I mean, it probably was there just to show off the 3D technology, right? This was a big 3D movie. That was part of the thing as well. Come and see A Christmas Carol in the cinema in 3D. So you imagine part of that effect is that, oh, very much in the foreground, you're seeing Scrooge's home. And then much further into the frame with that 3D effect, you're seeing the visions of Christmas presents in other places all the way through Scrooge's floor. When you look at it now, it just creates the most wild-looking frames. <laughs> just weird, weird choices that you're like, oh, so I guess the edge of my screen, most of the corners of my screen is like, here's a chair, there's a wardrobe, <laughs> and then in the floor there is a totally different image. It's like they got halfway through a wipe transition and it broke, and now half of the film just looks like you're watching it through the middle of another film. It is bonkers. It looks awful, but not as awful as as how we end the Christmas present sequence, right? Like, there's this general air of malevolence all the way through. Like, it's always feeling a little bit off kilter. I'm not totally comfortable with this giant laughing scouser hanging around. But partly this is from the Dickens, but it's a part of the Dickens that has never been really adapted, at least not in any of the versions I've seen. I'm not a a Christmas Carol adaptation expert, but like the major animated versions and and the Muppets allied this completely. So they're in what, like a dark kind of church or something? like Or maybe it's just meant to be Scrooge's house, but it's an old dilapidated building in the dark. And, you know, they're saying the goodbyes and then Scrooge says, hey, what's that there? What's that sticking out of your robe there? What's the crack with that scrawny little claw thing coming out of your robe, mate? Mate, you, you, got, you got a little claw hanging out there. <laughs> Have you left your fly open or something, pal? You want to <laughs> tighten up down there? And um, the ghost opens his robe, and there's two horrible little golem children under his dress, man! Like, clinging onto him. He's just carrying around these two little feral <laughs> children on his legs. Were they there the whole time? <laughs> and, and this is the bit that I've seen on TV. This is the bit I saw, like, years ago on TV. I flicked over. I was like, oh, Jim Carrey's Christmas Carol. That came out a long time ago. You know, I'll bet that's funny. Like, some dodgy CGI and stuff. And it was this scene. And I was like, man, I need to watch this <laughs> at some point. So for a long time, this is my only memory of the film, my only knowledge of it ignorance and want they are Uh, and even in the christmas carol charles dickens this is a very small part of the story like he doesn't really go into detail on this whole ignorance want metaphor which feels like one metaphor too many in this story that's just one big like moral fable it's like okay we're also going to have this little bonus thing in here about ignorance and want you better watch out for those but when you visualize it it's just this giant ginger scouse ghost laughing maniacally as children like rapidly age into adults and then they just start screaming at scrooge (laughs) and then the ghost falls backwards onto the ground and he's still laughing and he ages into a corpse, like, very quickly deteriorates. Like he drank from the wrong grave. <laughs> right, exactly. So now he's this, like, shriveled, mummified corpse laughing away. And then all of his flesh decomposes. And you get this one absolutely astonishing shot. It's a big laughing skeleton. He's just <laughs> a great big giant skull cackling away. And this is not 
wherever you find love, it feels like Christmas. You know, this guy's a demon. He's the worst of the lot. Yeah, I have it in my notes here. At that point, it just says, what was Zemeckis smoking? (laughs) Because the laughing, maniacal head of the skeleton of the Ghost of Christmas Present was just wild. Absolutely wild. (sighs) And we haven't even got to the spooky part of the story yet, which is the Ghost of Christmas Future. And it feels like Zemeckis was just on an absolute roll here, because after everything that happens to end the Ghost of Christmas Present... The Ghost of Christmas Future, before he even kicks in, we have this whole sequence, really, of Scrooge is now shrunk down into a teeny tiny man, he's a borrower now, he's running around in Victorian London, being chased by a horse and carriage, he's sliding around on rooftops, he's running next to a big old rat, he even sounds like Babu Freak at one point, he makes a little Babu Freak, he's got a little chipmunk voice, voice. yeah. This did not need to be here. This, again, it feels like they're trying to show off the 3D technology and, like, look how small he looks. Look how we can change (laughs) size and perspective. Look how small he looks. We've had normal-sized Jim Carrey. We've had get-big Jim Carrey. Now it's little tiny Diddy Jim Carrey. Don't forget little flame boy Jim Carrey. (laughs) And also, they just need an action scene, right? So this is not in Charles Dickens, the shrinking and the chasing. That is a Zemeckis original. We just need another action scene taking us all through the streets of London, getting chased by drunken zombies or whatever, and then getting in a, a scrap with a rat and, like, big Bob Hoskins poking them with a stick. Yeah, it's it's unnecessary. It, it It's distracting, and it's not entertaining particularly as an action sequence either like the tracking shot at the start was more exciting yeah and they're they're trying stuff like i see that they are really trying with this technology to go hey if you have this motion capture performance but you're in control of absolutely everything in the frame here's what you can do with it here's how you can make this totally malleable frame show anything you want and play with perspective and keep the fidelity of your performance in the middle of that but it does feel like a tech demo. It feels like a tripped-out tech demo in the middle of this film. And it's just a wild way to get us into the last part of the story, into the Ghost of Christmas future. I have a question about this bit. Is it canon that Scrooge dies on Christmas Day in the Ghost of Christmas future segment? Because we see his gravestone here and it's like, oh, if you don't sort this out, you're going to die on Christmas. That felt a bit convenient to me. Yeah, it's a funny one, isn't it? The timelines of this have always boggled me up a bit because in this, they take something from the book as well where it says, Jacob Marley says you're going to be visited by three ghosts on three consecutive nights and then they just all happen one after the other. He says like, oh, and then the next night you're going to hear the strike of 12 and you're going to be visited by this guy and then this is going to happen the night after that and that's going to happen the night after that and that's in the book as well but it's like it just all happens consecutively so i don't really and it's still christmas the next day and it was christmas eve the day before i try not to think too much about the timelines of it it does start to feel like it's canon though that scrooge gets like sucked into hell through his own grave at the end yeah because that happens in mickey's christmas carol as well when my boy pete sends him down there and that's something <laughs> that we're getting a much more visceral way here and that's not in the dickens so that feels like a almost a nod back to what disney did with it in mickey yeah This section, it just feels weird that they got Jim Carrey to be the Ghost of Christmas Future, because as happens with this version of the character, he doesn't talk. So they got Jim Carrey just to stand around and just point and go, hmm, and look a bit menacing. Feels a bit strange to me. Yeah, he doesn't have a face either. 
so we don't get to see this version of, of what CGI Jim Carrey's face is going to look like. The thing that's even stranger than that, though, is the very end of this film. So, as it always goes, Scrooge is so terrified by his three visions that he changes his ways, and come Christmas Day the next day, he is, in his own words, light as a feather and merry as a schoolboy, and this is when we get full-on Jim Carrey in Scrooge mode. And he is so freaky. He is doing the full-on Jim Carrey gun. He's like, and he's skipping down the street. I could not handle... I thought I wanted more Jim Carrey from this film. And then at the end, when I got full Jim Carrey, I could not handle it. And it's because he's still got that creepy, Scrooge-looking caricature face, right? He doesn't convince as a happy person because he was designed as a grumpy person. The design of Scrooge was meant to be this mean old dude, this nasty guy, but it doesn't look right when he's smiling. If it's Michael Caine, or I dare say Jim Carrey would do a great job of this, if you're an actor, you can just make yourself look grumpy and then later on make yourself look happy. If it's Michael Caine, he can cheer right up at the end and you feel the warmth coming out of him because it's that same craggy, gnarled face that he had before but, but filled with rosiness and cheer. But here, Jim Carrey is locked into this horrible head that he's got stuck on him so that the cheeriness makes for a really jarring contrast and to be fair his housekeeper in the film is visibly terrified by it so I think maybe it is supposed to be a little bit scary but if I was like and they don't really show this in this version of the film but if this guy broke down my door carrying a big turkey on Christmas day I'd be running for the hills you know tiny Tim would die on the spot (laughs) he's not got the constitution for this Not only does he turn up with a turkey, the turkey's still got its head on. The head of the turkey is like lolling around. I was like, why did they include that? It's probably period accurate, but it added a really freaky layer to the fact that he's like, get me the biggest turkey in the shop and it's still got a big old neck and a head dangling around. Awful. So we're used in this story, as we are in like a lot of children's stories, a lot of Disney movies indeed, to... A bit of catharsis at the end, right? We'll go through this very scary, like, dark night of the soul, spooky things happen, the movie's just been cranking up the horror, but we don't get, in this version, the catharsis of the happy Christmas morning because it's still scary. And they save the scariest bit until right at the end. This movie leaves you with as harrowing an image as you've had in any horror movie you've ever seen. Like, compare this to the final shot of whatever you want, and it will not be as scary as Bob Cratchit suddenly, absolutely unannounced, breaking the fourth wall at the end. He, like, leaves Scrooge's shop, he's been given his raise, and he's walking out the door, and he just turns around and looks at the camera and starts speaking directly to you, the audience, as if he'd been narrating this movie the entire time, but he hasn't. He's just looking at you, Ben, straight into your soul, telling you that, yeah, Scrooge is all right now, and he's uh, he's just as much of a dad to Tiny Tim as anybody, and everything's going to be happy from now on. Staring deep. Deep into your eyes. He's looking at me. Yeah. And I'm really glad I didn't see this in the cinema (laughs) with my 3D goggles on. (laughs) Feeling like the spirit of Bob Cratchit, the horrible Bob Cratchit, is going to haunt me every Christmas for the rest of my life. Okay then, for our third version of A Christmas Carol, surely, Sam, there aren't going to be discarded entries for this right nothing for discarded 
I mean, there was going to be a scene where the shrunken Scrooge gets stuck on a clothesline and uses a bra as a parachute. <laughs> uses a bra as a parachute. Zemeckis was absolutely drunk on power on this one. Who overruled him on that? That's not a Charles Dickens thing. I think maybe he met some spirits <laughs> in his sleep. The ghost of Charles Dickens turned up in his sleep and said, like, look, you can shrink him down, but just cut the bra bit. <laughs> well, now that we know about that, let's get into the reviews. What did critics say about this film at the time? Were people into it, into the spectacle of it all, the 3D, the performance capture, or was it a bit of a nightmare from the off? Well, Roger Ebert was into it. <laughs> I always start with Roger Ebert because he's like a guy who's been there for the entirety of like the last few seasons of Disney Versity. It's like a good barometer. What did he think? And you can always he's reviewed every movie ever. But there is a video that's going viral on Twitter as we speak of him arguing that Home Alone 3 is the best Home Alone movie. So he might not be. Wow. <laughs> he didn't hit it out of the park every time. So he gave this movie a four out of four. And he said it was an exhilarating visual experience that proves for the third time Zemeckis is one of the few directors who knows what he's doing with 3D. Yeah, I mean, he knows what he's doing with 3D in that he's poking your eyes out, which is always the 3D I kind of enjoyed more than the immersive, like, ooh, you feel like you're in the movie. Yeah. No, chuck stuff at me poke things out the screen, have Jim Carrey flying out of the screen on a rocket for some reason in the middle of your Christmas Carol movie. So he's evidently a fan of Polar Express and Beowulf as well. <laughs> uh, so this this movie, you know, some people liked it. it. It is different, you know, it's interesting. It got top marks from Entertainment Weekly and Time Out, but most other critics rinsed it, and particularly the motion capture visuals. So, for example, Peter Bradshaw said that there was a weird lack of passion here and called it impressive, but in an unexciting way, which I think it is impressive. I'm not sure if I can call it unexciting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was a lot of excitement when the Ghost of Christmas Past turned up. I was extremely excited when the big skeleton turned up. Yeah. Well, what about the box office? Did people go and see this? This comes out in 2009. And there's a certain other big film of the Christmas of 2009 with incredible performance capture and 3D effects that I imagine maybe took some of Zemeckis' thunder. Well, this came out a month before Avatar, so it definitely, like, as you get closer to Christmas, Avatar's going to start chewing into it, but maybe in anticipation of that, they released it a month in advance. They also mounted a lavish marketing campaign which included a four-carriage vintage train that was full of exhibits related to the film touring America, visiting 36 states in 24 weeks. And one might suggest that people would have little interest visiting a Christmas Carol exhibition in May, even if it is on board a train, but this was <laughs> what they thought was going to help them, you know, I think maybe get out ahead of, of the big Avatar buzz. So... It cost $200 million to make, it made $325 million, so not a huge disaster, but apparently accounting for marketing, i.e. the train, it lost Disney 50 to $100 million. Okay, that's probably not all the train, but some of it will have been. And this general debacle apparently led to the resignation of Mark Zarardi, the president of Walt Disney Studios Motion Pictures, and Ooh. the head of marketing. <laughs> so... Maybe the train and, and the other kind of lavish expenses that were that were pumping in of getting this thing out there contributed to to that resignation. And it also eventually down the road led to Disney shutting down Image Movers Digital. They were like, okay, that movie did not do well enough and that had big stars and it was based on a classic story. So if that's not going to work, surely Mars Needs Mums is going to do even worse. <laughs> they shut the studio down, but 
like Indiana Jones, Marzini's moms just managed to squeeze out under the door, winding up being one of the biggest bombs in Disney history. Wow, so that is the image movers. Marzini's moms is not a Walt Disney Animation Studios film, is it? That's not going to come up on the podcast. This is a whole weird little side era of Disney that is animation, but it's not Walt Disney Animation Studios. It's not going to come up in the natural course of the podcast, but if this episode proves anything, it's that I can get whatever I want out of you, Ben. We will do Mars <laughs> Needs Moms one day. Disneyversity needs Mars Needs Moms. Oh, man. Well, RIP Walt Disney. You would have loved the A Christmas Carol promotional train. He would have been all aboard that. (laughs) So true. What are we saying then? What is your star rating for this? I have given this three stars because it was... Really? (laughs) Said that in a very matter-of-fact way as if it was obvious. Ben, I have given this three stars because while... It is not good. It made me feel something. And I don't just mean in like a a so bad it's good way. I mean, I was sitting here agape, agog, agore. (laughs) I'm not sure how many of those are real words. Watching what was unfolding in front of me. And you know, it is an interesting take on Christmas Carol. It is tackling head-on elements of the book that other adaptations haven't really included. But bits of it are so exquisite, man. The big laughing skeleton, genuinely. The flame-headed Jim Carrey. You're never going to see that anywhere else. It's a three. This it was certainly a three-star experience. Maybe a two-and-a-half-star movie, but I was having a good time. I think I'm a two-star on this. If I'd have watched it with you, I think I would have had at least a four-star experience of all the screaming, intentional and otherwise... But I, this is not my Christmas Carol. It's Muppets all the way. Occasionally Mickey. We'll, we'll keep Mickey in the mix. But I doubt I'm going to end up watching this again. Maybe just the Ghost of Christmas Past bits when I'm round at yours and we've had a couple of Diet Cokes. Right then, that brings us to Lasting Legacy because a Disney movie is never just a Disney movie. In the world of straight-to-DVD sequels, theme parks, live-action remakes, crossover movies and more, there's a whole universe for each character. Or is there, in this case, I feel like the lasting legacy of this is image movers being shut down. (laughs) It took me a bit of digging, because usually the first place to go for lasting legacy is the Disney wikia, like the fan wiki, and they have really useful info boxes that list like everything that has ever been made to do with a thing. But here, this lasting legacy was not even included in the info box for Christmas Carol, not even the Disney wikia had a page on the A Christmas Carol Nintendo DS game. <laughs> Everything had a DS game, man. Like that, yeah. that system was selling so well. Everything had a DS game. And this was basically just like a point-and-click visual novel with mini-games along the way, like playing the fiddle, throwing snowballs at children, and escaping from a <laughs> rat-infested maze. And it nice. also includes an advent calendar that you can open every day. And, and this was advertised with a really big sticker on the front of the box, it includes the entirety of the Charles Dickens novel for you to read. So you can just scroll right. through on your DS reading the the actual text if you want. That was a whole thing on DS. There was a game that you could buy that was just like classic literature to read on your DS like it's a book. This was such a time and a place. The return of 3D to the multiplexes stylus-based DS games. What a time to be alive. Also very of its time was Scrooge's Soaring Star Ride, an Adobe Flash game <laughs> yes. where you control Scrooge flying through the air on the Ghost of Christmas Past's hat and you have to help him collect stars and avoid lightning strikes and attacking ducks. So 
I don't... That scene was like the basis for the whole movie. It's the poster, it's an entire Flash game. Yeah, I'm sure like a lot of the movies we've covered recently also had Flash games, but this is the first time I've had to dig deep enough to, uh, to, to include one in Last and Legacy. So that's basically it for the Last and Legacy of this particular version of A Christmas Carol. But in the spirit of The Ghost of Christmas Future, even though this, is, this ends the trilogy, like I don't think we're going to feel compelled to come back to it next year like we can find other disney christmas content to record an episode about but there are other disney christmas carols if we ever want to tackle them there is christmas cruella an episode of 101 dalmatians the series (laughs) there is captain scrooge an episode of jake and the neverland pirates there is a london carol which is an episode of the sweet life on deck which ben i'm sure you're aware is a spin-off of the sweet life of zach and cody it sounded like a zach and cody joint And again, the ghost of Christmas yet to come, just giving us one more little threatening point in the direction of the apparently upcoming musical movie, Marley, a live action musical based on the Christmas Carol, directed by Bill Condon and with songs writ, writ, writtenly written by Stephen Schwartz. (gasps) No way, he's dug, dug, duggity, dug his way back into the Disney studio. I cannot wait. Well, just when we thought we were done with Disney-based Christmas carols, they pull us back in, Sam. They always pull us back in. And that is it for this week's class. Join us again in the new year, where we'll be back on the long and winding road that is the Wilderness Years, picking back up with Treasure Planet. In the meantime, if you've enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a star rating or a review, that would be the best Christmas present you could possibly give us. It really helps us get discovered by new listeners. And if you do fancy dropping us a little review, we'll make sure that Robert Zemeckis never does a film like this ever again. For now, it's goodbye from Sam. Goodbye, God bless us, etc. And it's goodbye from me. Ho, ho, ho. Merry Christmas, everybody. Disneyversity is brought to you by Ben Travis and Sam Summers. Our artwork is by Ollie Gibbs, and our music is by Nefetz. Follow us at Disneyversity on Twitter and Instagram, and catch you for next week's class. Disneyversity.